Hey, Digital Wildcatters, welcome to Big Digital Energy. Chuck Yates here. I am back, just reintroducing myself in case uh, people forgot me. Partners in Crime, Kirk Coburn. You still in Nantucket? I'm still in Nantucket. They're trying to get kick me off, but um, still here. Nice. And Mark Meyer. Mark, how are you? Doing well. So what are we going to talk about today? What did I miss? Since I've uh, since I've been in Europe four out of the last five weeks, how do you like that drop? Well, the world is on fire, Chuck. At least in certain parts. Of the Rome world. was. I will tell you this. Rome was. All right, real quick before we start. You know, Rome was. We did all the touristy things. We did the Colosseum, all that. The the Sistine Chapel. We did the Vatican. You know what really kind of struck me, and I didn't think it would kind of get to me, but it did. Pope John Paul II's grave. You know, because all the popes are buried under St. Peter's Basilica. And it just kind of hit me because, I mean, I remember that guy and Reagan and Thatcher fighting communism. And the church has obviously had its problems. But uh, anyway, that was kind of a, a moment. Cool. I didn't, yeah, I didn't I didn't think that was going to get me and it got me. I just want to know if Southwest Airlines is chasing you down since so you're spending spending most of your miles in in routes that they don't cover yeah exactly the uh i've never flown lufanza before this trip but i flew lufanza so i had my uh tour through frankfurt you know i will say first class lufthansa it it, it actually rivals the middle eastern airlines in terms of their champagne and caviar is pretty damn good i agree with you it did the, uh, the, the <laughs> Kelly, Kelly, did. my baby, and by the way, you didn't buy first class. They saw, Oh shit. It's Chuck Yates. And they said, right this way, sir. Is that correct? No. Uh, daughter Kelly came to me and said, daddy, can we fly first class? Here's why we need to do it because she had had a athletic injury or some sort and daddy fell for it. But it was great. I flew real first class on KLM, Lufthansa, Singapore, Malaysia, et cetera, a long time ago. Singapore still top of my list. Yeah. At least back in the day. I don't know how much has changed. It's been a while since real first class has been available. Yeah, it was stunning. No, the champagne was good, and you're right. I don't think I got caviar, but the it was pretty good. So, All right. So I think- Let's make it punchy. I think, yeah, exactly. Let's make it punchy. I was lectured on that in Sardinia, but we'll uh, we'll leave that aside. Um, the um, so when I left, the rig count was down slightly uh, week over week. You know, the trailing four weeks, it was down. Whatever. Did I miss anything? No, it's last week. It was a continuation of the same. You had horizontals down five. Four of those were in the Permian. Um, that's thirty over the last four weeks. Publics continue to lead the way down, sticking to their capital discipline guns. You know, you had a so far a fairly uneventful, and and we're just getting into the meat of energy earnings. Although you had the majors last week, which were, you know, generally kind of neutral to constructive to okay. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to beat a twenty twenty two comp, right? So the numbers were down on a year over year basis, but generally pretty well-received. Underneath all that, you've had uh, a growing story of tightening fundamentals against the backdrop of, you know, somewhat 
solid to constructive inventory numbers. There's still a lot of noise around things like adjustment factors. But what we've seen here recently, ZIA came out last week and they adjusted made demand up a pretty substantial amount, almost a million barrels a day, 973,000 barrels a day. On top of that, the adjustment factor, the week week to week adjustment factor, which is the fudge factor, rose to a record of 2.4 million barrels a day. Again, a lot of analysts saying we're, we're still suspect about data quality, et cetera. Uh, Jack McClendon had a good reply to Javier Blas's tweet on the adjustment factor saying, how can they publish the data given the fudge factor is slightly less than Kuwait's production? <laughs> well, you know, we when I used to go out and fundraise and, and talk to investors, they would always ask, where are we, you know, kind of supply demand. And I go, man, I am great telling you what happened nine months ago. You know, I can do that. But, you know, look, look, at any given moment, we just don't ever know. Well, and, you know, demand sides come more into focus um, because of the adjustments, the upward adjustments. Goldman was out either late yesterday or today with a revision to 2023 demand. All that translates into a um, supply-demand deficit of 1.8 million barrels a day for the second half of this year. Um, that's 600,000 barrels a day in 2024. So, you know, directionally, things are starting to show up. Remember, we've been talking about the show-me aspect of the fundamentals. Um, clearly, the equities responded. The XOP was up 11% or is up 11% mm -hmm. or in change this month. So, so Kirk, I'm going to put you on the, the, the spot. Do we get you know, $80 oil to 110 in like 30 days when the market gets slapped, are we going to keep slogging around? What happens? Well, here's what I want to ask. I was, I'm not going to redirect and go to Mark because I'm curious. One of the headlines that came out of the earnings is that the Exxon and Chevron combined are holding on to what about $14 billion of additional profits. And they've signaled that they're going to shop for deals. So I always think it's a little funny when you don't necessarily meet expectations and it's sort of like, you know, earnings announcements are like so-so, but you tell people that, hey, but in the future, we're about to spend a lot of cash and it's going to be really accretive. As an analyst, what, do you, what, what does that say to you? And that's going to be my answer to, to Chuck. Was that the redirect? That was the redirect. That's the redirect. You're, you're the only analyst here. What does that mean when you're saying, hey... Here's our here's our earnings, but hey, we got a lot of cash and we're on the hunt. Yeah, it's we're looking for deals. Yeah, it's dry powder. I think uh, I think it addresses somewhat, and and I think the the interpretation of both what Exxon and and Chevron message or signaled was that their enthusiasm for shale hasn't waned. So looking specifically in that direction, and so I think that's you know I think that continues to be. A positive, does that bolster the the notion that we have degrading inventory quality, which is still in a bit bit of a tug of war of debate, whether that's actually the case? Um, I think for Exxon in particular, that makes more sense than for Chevron, but you know, they're they're each going to have a competitive response that's ultimately going to be very similar as it relates to shale, in my opinion. And so I think that sets up well for, you know, accelerating deal activity. Um, you know what's getting going, me? Going into next year. 
Well, you know, what's getting me about the earnings season is we're still getting AOC talking about windfall profits and the like. I sent a snarky tweet back that said I'd have, you know, if I was an oil cartel, I'd have higher gross uh, uh, net income margins than Exxon currently did. It's almost like this cartel is as effective as a representative who's never passed a major piece of legislation. Um, but no, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're still getting that as well, even though, like you said, this year wasn't last year. Yeah. And it's not 2020 when they were hemorrhaging gobs of profits and I I think it wasn't 2012 to 2022. I think you, I, I think you made the point in part of the snark that, you know, it's a really effective cartel that, you know, let prices go to minus 37. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and hey, it's, 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 other, it's other, because they have high taxes, they they want to have some losses in there. Other Same analysts, no one have, ever. you know, you look, you look at kind of the long horizon, the decade leading into the inflection that was coming out of COVID and then in the new extended capital discipline, the sector virtually returned zero over the long haul with a pretty good tailwind of prices. And that was the, you know, the shale sweepstakes where you're, uh, thinking or projecting that somehow field level or half cycle drilling IRs are going to ultimately manifest as robust full cycle returns on capital employed. And we, we saw from the numbers that just wasn't the case. Yeah. And so we continue to see an extension of capital discipline and uh, building dry powder for things like what we know is going to be at some point an accelerating consolidation game if asset values and cash flow stay at this level. So let, let's what go. What do you make of this massive EIA demand revision? Uh, I, there's some other things at play that I think are interesting. Fire away. That was a question. <laughs> I missed the question. The EIA, the, the EIA demand revision for May from 973,000 barrels a day to 20.8 million barrels a day. Well, if you roll that into the weekly adjustment factor conversation, the, the are there other things at play here? I think the question is, are there kind of political dynamics as it relates to mm-hmm. the headline numbers and then the catch-ups? If, I saw a graph last week that showed how the weekly adjustment factor has blown out. Really, It, it got really muted in terms of deviation in 07, 08, 09. It started creeping up. And as you got into West Texas shale, and then certainly since COVID and, and recently has blown out, um, my somewhat naive or apolitical vantage point is we've got a lot of great technology to measure things that we didn't have five and 10 years ago. Um, in mm-hmm. my mind, if it is a measuring barrel standpoint, then that adjustment or that error should go down, right? But it's not. Now, that that probably has nothing to do with anything, but just intuitively, that's the way I think about it. We have a lot of real-time measurement capability, a lot of technology, a lot of uh, digital and satellite and other types of data collection. I don't know how the process itself of reporting has even adopted any of that over time. Um, it's not something I've delved into, but it would be interesting to, to start to drill down. I think if you see a continuation of this, you know, highly volatile and, and expanding adjustment factor, um, 
we're going to have some some real need to really drill down on on what's going on with the IA and its data collection. And yeah, and you're and you're seeing the same thing in inventory numbers too. So I mean, so I mean, data everywhere is having adjustment factors and 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 the like. All right, so let's go around the horn real quick to to kind of close out this segment. What are we going to see, Kirk? Are we going to see slap in the face prices go through the moon? Are we going to see continued drudging along? Or are we going to see maybe a soft landing? However you want to want to phrase it, what are we going to see? I mean, I, I think we're going to see prices uh, continue to, to rise. I think August is going to be an interesting month to watch as we're about to jump into it tomorrow. Um, there's still sort of the macro factors happening. I don't know what OPEC's going to do. Um, and you never know what's going to happen with Ukraine, but I'm, I'm expecting that demand is really strong. And so you're going to see uh, prices tick up. Mark? I, I think this is a good early sign of fundamentals pulling through despite all the noise. Um, I'm not much different than that. I think, I think given where energy is, is, and this is mostly from from an equity perspective, where it is from both a representation in the market in terms of profitability and the weighting, uh, but also the v- relative valuation uh, and absolute valuation compared to, you know, its competitor sectors that have garnered most of the uh, the inflows. I you know I I do think the the fundamental story gets to a point of, you know, you really got to start you really got to start sharpening your pencil about uh, adding adding positions here. That's not investment advice. That's just the way I see it. Because the fundamentals, as we talked about, are showing up. So here's the deal what's going to happen. We're going to slog along kind of like we have been as we roll into winter. And it's going to be winter weather that's going to drive whatever happens. So we wind up with the second warmest winter since 1882, last year being the the warmest, uh, at least that Europe had. Then maybe we, may, maybe we kind of slog along some more. If we wind up having any sort of a cold snap, all hell breaks loose and energy prices are through the roof. The Houston, Texas is going to have the greatest <laughs> Christmas ever if uh, if we see unless a cold we freeze, snap. Unless we freeze. Yeah. So, so we freeze. caution on you know kind of recency bias or what you're experiencing is the average. This data is about a week old, or at least the summer data from June 1st through, I think it was July 19th. Lower 48 weather has been 0.07 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than normal, 0.07. Rome, Rome was hot, well, I, think, I will say that. I mean, you know, <laughs> Greece is hot. Greece was hot I for a couple of reasons. I usually don't these sort of forecasts because, you know, this is my special behind the scenes look, but I think so many Americans went to Europe this year, this summer, that Europe's going to freeze itself to, to burn off all the American extra hair and follicles that they left behind. <laughs> but we're going to have a freeze this winter. <laughs> there we go. All right. Perfect. All right. The German economic minister, how do we pronounce that? Habeck? Good enough. Habeck came out and Good said that citizens should prepare prepare for five tough years ahead. I read the article, but I didn't get to see exactly what he said. They only selectively quoted him. 
He's crazy, dude, right? What did what was he saying? Well, he's the economic minister for the Greens and basically saying that, well, their goals really have a 2030 peg on them. And he said the next five years are going to be really tough as we need to turn the corner. And that is the pushing the acceleration of transition to renewables. You know, we saw it in March with the shutdown of the last nuclear facilities and what that meant for power prices in Germany's largest state immediately. And so what he's saying is that we're not, we're not wavering. We're, we're not moving off this path, but he's also being very direct and very blunt. Whether you like the message or not, they're, they're not, at least his rhetoric is not, is very straightforward and very clear. Uh, you're, you're going to absorb some pain, whether you're a, an individual consumer or an industrial consumer. I mean, Kirk, dare I say he's being intellectually honest? I mean, saying, hey, we're going to spend a lot of money. Energy prices are going to going to go up. The grid's not going to be as reliable. I mean, I, I actually am. I don't agree with that message, but I'm actually OK if that was what the environmentalist movement would say, because I think that's reality. I mean, really, all he's doing is saying what, what has already transpired over the previous five years. I mean, has he I mean. He's just saying, hey, it's going to be more of the same as far as I'm concerned when I read sort of his comments. Well, I don't think it's politically wise to say that. But that's exactly what what Germany has been doing. They've been cutting, you know, off their internal coal supplies. They've been moving to uh, get energy from other sources. I mean, there's a whole lot. And then if you read of what they're trying to do about Europe's all these interconnects, they're trying to connect all these different um, interconnects between the different grids amongst Europe. There's one between um, the UK and Germany, but the, the projects have been delayed due to supply chain parts, et cetera. And so there's going to be a, it, what they're trying to do and what they want to do or are, you know, trying to do and want to do are two different things because what they want to do is going to take a lot much longer than they anticipated. Well, when you say they, that, I think that brings up a, a yeah, good point. A nice let, let's let's break that down into who they is, right? In my sense, and this is purely anecdotal, from being in and around a few German cities over the last few weeks, is that I did not pick up one data point in conversation where there wasn't a building sense of fatigue with this on the consumer level. And from a business standpoint, you know, I heard some some talk of, look, I'm thinking of relocating to Italy uh, because they have such an age gap in their population. The tax policy and and everything else is much more favorable, which is stunning given the industrial profile and the industrial might of German of the German economy within within <laughs> the European Union. And, and this so- this is a marked departure. From I spent four days in Berlin last summer, if you recall, and I came back telling you that those guys are just going to gut it up and pay it. They're okay with it. It's great. I didn't hear any bitching about anything. They're the austere people, you know, et cetera. It sounds like it sounds like maybe something's taken root over the last year. Yeah, I mean, we'll so you're talking about Austin. Talking about uh, Germany. Yep, I know. Oh, but, gotcha. But what you're saying is Berlin, the people in Berlin. Oh, gotcha. I mean, are they high wages, 
it's, you know, it's, it's nice to be top, you know, in the top 5%, right? Well, and I was talking about the Uber driver who, you know, asked him about gasoline prices and you didn't hear a lot of bitching, but it sounded like Mark actually got to hear some bitching. Well, this was, this was admittedly my most significant conversation was admittedly in a college town, right? So you've got a service economy that pays that type of wage and you start putting additional cost and tax pressure on that individual and what that implies for standard of living or ability to afford to continue the lifestyle that they have, which is by no means opulent. In fact, I would call it austere in most cases, right? Um, is it a tipping yeah. point? You know, we'll see. But I, I think I think the messaging is interesting just given what has transpired over the last couple of years um, with respect to inflation. We continue to see German data points of, of industrial, you know, slowdown, shutdown, um, that uh, they're pushing, I think, what would be to the rank and file consumer or voter would be an increasingly unpopular point of view, policy point of view. Yeah. So we'll see. So what what's going on in the uh, United Kingdom with the conservatives? <sighs> they're, they're, there's, you know, the leadership is rolling back in, in the UK to their credit in this commitment if, you know, in, in terms of getting after it, you know, many years ago when it was time to sign up for net zero targets and legislate or make law and policy around things like phasing out uh, sales of new internal combustion engine vehicles, you know, the, the British are starting to see within the conservative party, they're starting to see a little splintering as these rollbacks by some are viewed as too aggressive. In other words, don't take us this far off the path that we committed to. And so I think that that wedge uh, potentially starts to grow. As, and, and I have no insider familiarity with the, the British election calendar, but um, just picked up a couple of pieces that talked about this growing division within the conservatives. And we've been talking a lot about, you know, there, there's been a groundswell of pushback, but you know, the, the, the commitment to these, uh, to these next generation policies, if you want to call them that, um, you know, the UK was out front and now having more of a, a radical rollback, if you will, is, is something that's causing dissension within the party. Hmm. I mean, I find that interesting I, because the conservatives are not, are, they're not the, they're not, they're, they're, Wow, I can't even say anything today. Um, they're really struggling in the polls. So I don't know if the splintering is because of this, Mark. That's what I'm curious about. But at the same time, there are concerns that the green push has resulted in a cost of living crisis. Um, so it's really on the other, on across the, across the aisle that's interesting because the prime minister has not delayed the 2030 ban on the sale of new um, petrol and diesel cars. I mean, they're still banning, you know, non EVs in 2030. That's, that's around the corner. So do you think it's the conservative party fighting because they're not getting a whole lot of traction in the polls or, or is it something else? Well, I think, I think it's moves designed to roll those things like that back. And the Tories are saying, look, mm -hmm. some of them are saying we're not, you, you risk loss of support. 
within the party. Yeah. So I was over, I was over uh, in London for about five days and didn't pick up much. Uh, we didn't had some of the greatest Chinese food I've ever had in my life, by the way, Kia in London, highly recommended. It was amazing. Didn't pick up much, you know, why man you, on the why street. Why didn't you Instagram that, Chuck? What'd you say? Why didn't you Instagram that? I was uh, I was keeping the the semi low profile out on uh, out on Instagram with uh, the European vacation. I popped up one or two things, I think, but didn't pick up much in the way of man on the street kind of feel for energy, but did find it really fascinating that. Uh, they have done some stuff on the demand side, particularly meters inside the house that are giving you real-time yeah. feedback on how much energy you're using and how much it's costing. And that that has an impact because uh, one of the the couples we were uh, had dinner with were talking about that. They go look at the meter four and five times a day and, okay, maybe we're going to turn up the temperature a little bit in the, in the house just because it's costing us an arm and a leg. And we haven't done any of I that mean, the, in the United States. The local retailers, Octopus being probably the the, the, the leader here on technology, but they the retailer retail electricity providers in the UK have done a really good job of communicating the environmental cost and, and individual cost uh, of electricity. I think it's actually pretty interesting. My my one British indicator was the one night I spent at the Duke's Hotel. In that typically the heated towel rack will burn your hand and <laughs> it was, it was turned off. Ah, <laughs> there, there we go. It was, it was the martini as cold as normal though. The it, it was, uh, there's, there's no, there's no cutting corners on that martini. So I didn't get to I'm have one. Not stirred. Of course. I didn't get to have one because, uh, Sunday night, the Duke's bar was closed. The night, the night we uh, we spent at Duke. So I still have yet to. You used have to be able Duke's. to walk in, but you know, I I made a point of of texting ahead and and making a reservation. You have so, to now, supposedly. So it was only yeah. there one night and needed to needed to have that experience again. It's been a while. Gotcha. So, all right, let's turn our focus back to the United States. Wind is dead now. <laughs> is, that, is that what I missed? <laughs> no, I, Kirk, you you. You got out front of this on Twitter this weekend, but um, I think it was triggered by something having to do with Rhode Island. Yeah. I mean, Rhode Island basically canceled the wind project offshore be because of the, the price. Economically, it just doesn't make any sense. They cannot produce, with all the capital and operating costs, they can't produce energy to compete even close with currently what they have. So. Um, so I tweeted that out, um, thought it was funny. And, um, and then it was you, Mark, that picked up on who sort of replied to that tweet. Um, Orsted's PR guy himself was like, wait a minute, you know, when, when's great because of all the government incentives and tariffs, which is kind of funny because it, that's exactly what you shouldn't say, I would think, if you're the largest wind uh, producer in the world, um, I wouldn't think that you're saying, Hey, we're getting paid by the government. That's why it's great. I'm like, that's, that's sort of the, an oxymoron as far as I'm concerned. But Mark, would you, would you, would you think? Well, th this was the second tranche or phase of the quote unquote revolution project, right? 
someone was called Second Revolution. Right. And so the full filing of Rhode Island Energy is not, I don't think, yet available with the Public Utility Commission. The most interesting thing in there to me was uh, one of the reasons for rejection was this general uncertainty about federal tax subsidies, which kind of flies in the face of all the momentum behind things like the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't, you know, how can it know how directly connected this is, but, you know, and, and maybe that was, hate to use the term, I don't mean it this way, but maybe it was a bit of a cop out, right? But it does show you with all of these pressuring factors that, you know, you, you kind of risk things higher. And so if there's this boatload or this tidal wave of tax incentive coming for offshore wind, why is there now uncertainty that is part of the reason that you decided to reject the proposal? Well, and, you know, Ed, the, the dirty little secret of renewables is in a world of one and a half to two percent interest rates, you can get things built right in a world of six to eight percent interest rates when the uh, when the cost of your debt equals the underlying cost of or the underlying returns that your project's going to generate. There's just not any room for the equity there. So we uh, I had Robert Smith on the podcast about two years ago, and that's what he said. He said, literally, if you wanted to short interest rates, go short all the renewable projects because second the interest rates rise, boom, that's that's going to be real. Yeah. And then when you see all the cap the capex going way up because um, of the supply chain issues and just the cost to build and the timelines, your projects are getting a lot more expensive to put in directly uh, as well as it's going to take longer and then your operating costs are going uh, i've gone way up way up because of the uh, because of the interest rates it's um and you put all that in your little formula and it says there's no way we're going to make money on it projects get killed yeah all right this is i think probably the biggest deal of all the things we're going to talk about today Mark, you threw this article around about banks coming up and trying to um, to uh, deal with carbon footprint and liabilities accrued on the balance sheet and all. Explain what's going on there, because I, I think this is really a big, huge deal. Well, global banks are trying to come up with an accounting standard for emissions and you know reporting your bank's carbon footprint. The big issue, mm -hmm. at least in this article, was, look, they've elected to ignore two-thirds and only account for a third in this latest policy iteration. And the argument is, and, and this is for capital markets activities, not direct lending. Um, the argument it is, is, at least from the environmental opposition, is it needs to be 100% because capital markets activity is directly responsible for financing these projects that emit, right? And so, so the bank. So just to step back, if you're a bank and you're capital markets, you're providing equity to an oil and gas company, the today, you're going to get, or, or the, the the discussion has been, you're responsible for those carbon emissions. 
Right. Because you're actually providing the capital for that company to be able to drill, et cetera, et cetera. This is part of a larger issue. And I, I, I would highly recommend, again, I tweeted it out or retweeted it, uh, the podcast that Arjun Murthy did with um, Representative Crenshaw last week or the week before talked about the various incredible stock trader, by the way, just letting you know <laughs> the, the various, um, I guess, points of political focus in this whole debate and who's actually a threat or a risk and who's actually just kind of noise and entertainment. And so if you think about, you know, all the focus and debate around the world economic forum, what BlackRock and Larry Fink are doing, you know, what the IEA is saying, what the UN is saying, you know, that's all very entertaining part of the debate is, was Crenshaw's point and another adage he, I had not heard from him, which is, look, Democrats want to win. Republicans want to be entertained. And so they create these bogeymen type of dynamics. And Arjun's point was, look, embedded in things like the Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero, there are real risks to damage and injury here from not having projects financed as as we know banks have in some cases pulled back on their willingness to finance fossil fuel projects munich re is out of the business and talking about the reinsurance market so there are really actionable things that these companies can do that this more nebulous or more rhetoric driven political uh distraction is not kind of a material threat uh, Here, if that makes sense yeah and here's what i think's going on if you're a bank and you're doing your underwritings of bonds and stocks if you could throw oil and gas under the bus you totally would sure. i mean there's just not a lot of underwriting Absolutely. going on the problem is you cannot create a standard and and this is what i think they're struggling with where all of a sudden amazon does not have high emissions because they've got vans running everywhere. And I'm picking on Amazon because I always pick on them about this point. Ultimately, if you create these standards, a lot of base businesses are going to show up as big emitters because they're using the oil and gas. And then all of a sudden you're shutting down anyone you could possibly underwrite uh, for equity and debt. I think that's probably what's going on. Some lawyers sitting there going, Hey, if we do this, you can't do an underwriting for IBM or whoever the case might be. So well, I think that I think there's a couple issues in this, Chuck. I mean, I think you're that's so right on. First of all, the issue is why are banks taking any responsibility for someone else's carbon emissions? But that that's a question, but that's happening. But the banks and this and what this story was talking about is that this sort of group of banks that got together and and that are part of this carbon accounting financial partnership for carbon accounting financial they're saying that wait a minute they've thought through this issue of us taking 100% accountability over equity financing an oil and gas company we're going to have to count those emissions but they're recommending that they cut those emissions instead of counting 100% they want to count only 33% cuz they don't want to be burdened with those emissions. So it's interesting how the banks are pushing. I mean, the, the, the global financial system's pushing a narrative about carbon tax, carbon tax, but, but not for us. That's what I think the story is really interesting is that they're trying to 
manipulate their own carbon accounting numbers by saying we are, we're only responsible for 33% versus 100% of the emissions that our customers are ultimately um, generating. Yeah, and it, it when you lay it right next to the to the oil and gas or the majors scope 3 demands, it, it's it's you know, it's it's uh it's not consistent at least right? Who's who's responsible? I was going to ask you Who's responsible for those Amazon trucks emissions? Should Exxon count those in scope three or should Amazon be responsible scope one or scope two? Cause it's, or should the consumer who is ultimately got, you know, got the goods that are being delivered by that truck to their individual residences. Is that, is that where that carbon footprint accounting should, yeah, should, should, ultimately the, take place? should the individual that does three deliveries in one day, instead of bunching them to one a week, I mean, who, who who ultimately is responsible? It's a it's a good point. I think you know we in the industry, the the energy industry, have been dreading the possibility of having to report emissions. I do think if they hold to the rules, kind of as proposed in a weird sort of way, it's going to be good for us because it's going to cause hopefully a more reasonable, rational discussion along the lines of what you just said, Mark. For for the banks, it's you know it's an appeasement, I think, in that look, we'll take a third of them, right? Why a third? Yeah. Why not ten percent? It's arbitrary, right? Yeah, I could make I, an argument. Yeah. You know, there, there's an argument it should be zero. Um, uh, the environmental opposition says it should be hundred percent. My other question is in all this, and it it was somewhat addressed by the question about the Amazon truck and who's responsible is how much double counting is there going to be? Right. Yeah. And and shouldn't that was one of the shouldn't this be? I always go back to I always go back to what Scott Tinker said, down. which is we have one atmosphere. Right. And so it's your <laughs> metaphor is peeing and non-peeing section of the pool. Yeah, there are none. It's it's one pool. And and I don't want to completely sidetrack this discussion, but, but I think it's an it, it's an important point in you know where the the highest concentrations and the the most acute issues are, you know, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, China uses a multiple of, of the next largest um, coal emissions polluter globally, and they continue to permit at a pace last year of two coal, coal-fired power generation plants a week. And the notion, the somewhat naive notion is that we can, and I made it on the energy uh, draft, uh, however many months ago that was, year and a half ago, ago, 18 yeah. months ago, was that natural gas is a strategic weapon with which the U.S. can play kind of economic offense by and, and doing yeah. right by emissions reduction because of the case study we have in the lower 40 or in the U.S. replacing coal with natural gas. But a really good point that it hasn't been amplified enough is it's an intractable economic situation for countries like China and India and Vietnam and a lot of Pacific Rim countries because they have such an endowment of coal that they're not going to move off of that without some type of policy or governmental intervention. I think I mentioned that as, you know, it needs to be addressed at the government and political level, but I really didn't have, you know, a, a deep acknowledgement of that being the case. Well, and I think you can even give them a moral leg up if you say everything you just said per person, 
Right. I mean, why, why should we count, you know, China versus the United States? Why shouldn't we look it's four times as large? Per, yeah. Per person. Wise. Could you get into per person? And I think China and India can say with a straight face, hey, United States, you're still you're still worse than we are. And so, I mean, that needs to be addressed as uh, as well. well. Some people still care about the sovereignty of nations. So going to this sort of one world idea doesn't make everyone comfortable. But I do think going back to the double counting situation about the partnership for carbon accounting financials, who cares about double counting? If I'm the one that's administering or collecting the fees, the taxes based on carbon tax, based on emissions, if I'm in the middle of it, I'll tax everybody, even if I'm triple, quintuple taxing. So I think there's something interesting going on with the banks driving this initiative they're saying, hey, we believe in this initiative, but we don't ourselves want to be held accountable for 100%. But we're sure hell-bent on making sure someone does is held accountable because we want to collect the money and we want to contribute as being part of the you know, the system that actually governs this. Yeah, and they that want to, to get me is what I'm trying to Holly, Holly brought an extra tinfoil hat up to Nantucket, and I love it. I'm right there with you. <laughs> one world order let's go there will always be something to unpack on this particular line of discussion yes so all right my my soapbox um this weekend i was sitting there this is good chuck colin sent me a text and just said i really hate this shit and he sent me a tweet there's a guy named peter mckenzie have no idea who the guy is he looks like a silicon valley bro type um looks like he's a consultant to stripe so seems a techie guy i think he actually lists on twitter that he lives in tokyo but he came out and you should go find this tweet it was a great tweet about holy cow i just found out about fracking and he spelled it with a k of course but and he talked about you know it seemed like sorcery to me but it I read the the tweet as full of amazement and wonder. He called us mad geniuses for being able to figure out certain things. He lasered in on how important it was, private ownership of minerals and supply chain duplication or duplication of services and competition on that front. And I kind of went, wow, this is really cool. We've got a Silicon Valley guy who's at least showing some intellectual curiosity, saying some nice things about oil and gas. And energy folks read that like he was trashing our in- industry and just went nuts on him. Oh, you don't spell it with a K. Oh, you know, we're not Don Quixote's. Oh, sorcery. And it just bugged me. So I went on a rampage this weekend about it. Well, f- from my vantage point over the last almost decade, we're going to need more and more of that talent coming in. And it relates to things that Sean Maher was talking about last week, you know, things like smart grid management, uh, data mm. science and, and engineering and analytics are going to be a big part of the next step. And if we don't embrace, you know, or enlarge the tent, if you will, and welcome kind of the next generation or a new generation of capability and talent, you know, energy is going to continue to to lag in terms of its attractiveness for people who are passionate about analysis and problem solving. 
that makes sense. I always made the pitch to people, look, if that really floats your boat, there is no more challenging and complex industry in terms of problem solving, uh, particularly in the subsurface realm, just to put a, a finer point on it. Uh, there's a lot of very sophisticated uh, data, technology, the integration and tool building around all that that is going to make a huge difference going forward. And, and and I will say this, with the advancements in AI and what's going on there and the potential for all of that, Silicon Valley needs energy today like never before. Uh, I had Tim Kramer on my podcast last week, and we were talking about power and the long-term outlook. We are going to use way more power over the next 10 to 15 years than we're anticipating we're going to need because of this. And I got one stat for you. A Google search is one watt. An AI search of the same thing is 5x that. Yeah, it's five watts. To train the AI to train the AI in natural language to do that one AI search is a hundred to a thousand times that one watt. So we're going to embed AI in everything under the planet. And I Google search, I don't know, a hundred times a day for various things. It's going to happen. We're going to need so much more power. I think Silicon Valley is going to figure out they need us supplying that power. We have entrees to make roads there. Let's not be dickheads to them, because if we could align energy with Silicon Valley, which is where it's heading right now, we could actually have some political clout and we could do a lot of great things. And I worry that us energy guys are so jaded, we're so beaten up that all we do, we can't even take a compliment when someone calls us a genius. <laughs> well, Chuck, you know what I like about you is you have this unselfish concern for the welfare of others. And I think that's the underlying thing that we need to take away when we're speaking about energy, whatever we're doing. I think we do. It's fun to debate on Twitter. It's fun to like to, to have these discussions as long as we have data, because I'm, we're, I think the three of us, we're, we're super pro energy transition, but we also hold people accountable for being emotional about an argument when they're over their skis because it, they're motivated to, they make money through a faster transition, et cetera. But underlying, I think you're right. We need to have unselfish concern for others, at least, you know, I guess that's the definition of altruistic. Well, altruism, it's, it's don't, you know, therapy, all the years of therapy I had, you know, it's don't get mad, get curious. So if somebody says something, you it. know, it's like, hey, what's that all about? You know. Boys, this has been fun. It has been fun. I look forward fun. to seeing you guys in the studio next week. We look forward to having you uh, back as well. Digital Wildcatters, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, if you like the podcast, subscribe to it, share it with a friend. We'll be back. I think we'll have all four of us back next week. We'll drag Colin into the studio, and we look forward to seeing you then.